There will be swearing. I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. Hey, how you doing? Adam Buxton here. Thank you very much indeed for downloading part two of this Bowie Wallow. I'm just trudging up quite a steep hill here. So I'm getting a little breathless because I'm old and I wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled and I do not dare to eat a peach. Just a delicious jazz apple. They sent me a free mug after I mentioned jazz apples before. It's the big time for buckles. Um, So I, I don't need another mug, by the way, if you're listening, jazz apple guys. So listen, part two of the Bowie Wallow. And uh, what can you expect? Well, I, there's the, the main body of this uh, podcast will be a conversation between myself and uh, Jonathan Ross. His radio show on Radio 2 for a long time, BBC Radio 2, was one of the best radio shows there ever was. He actually talked to Bowie on that show and then had Bowie on his TV chat show. Their paths crossed professionally a few times, and he was always a massive Bowie fan, and I've known him for a while, so we got together to to talk all about him. If if, if you were a a big Bowie fan, then you probably will have done the same sort of thing with your pals. It was very comforting and cathartic to um, talk about Bowie that week, and, and... I mean, it's something that I always like doing anyway, crapping on about music and music that I love. So that's what Jonathan and I will be doing later on in the podcast. Uh, At the end of the podcast is a a cover of one of my favourite Bowie songs by Gaz Coombs. You know Gaz Coombs. He used to be in Supergrass. And now he is a brilliant solo artist. Um, his last album, Matador, was a smash. But right now, you are going to hear from Johan Renk. He's a Swedish man, a male Swedish man, and he directs music videos and uh, commercials. He's directed episodes of TV shows like Breaking Bad and Vikings. I love Vikings. And uh, he's done a Walking Dead episode, I think. And he's worked with Madonna and Kylie and lots of uh, pop heavy hitters. And he also uh, directed a TV show called The Last Panthers for Sky. And in the course of doing that, he uh, got in touch with Bowie just out of the blue towards the beginning of last year, 2015, to ask if Bowie would be up for doing some theme music. And he expected to be knocked back immediately. But Bowie was someone who'd seen his work and liked it. And he responded positively and said, well, look, I've got this track I'm working on, Black Star. 
And so an embryonic version of that track ended up being the theme tune to The Last Panthers. Bowie then continued to work on it, and it became this 10-minute epic that you can hear on the Black Star album. And he got in touch with Johan and said, how about doing a, a video for the song then? And I spoke to Johan on Skype in the course of putting together the Bug Bowie special. Now, Bug is a show that I've been doing since 2007. Every few months at the BFI, I sit there with my laptop and play music videos, read out YouTube comments and ponce around. And, uh, of course, this year we felt that we ought to, wanted to do a Bowie special. And um, one of the videos that we show is the Lazarus video. Uh, Bowie's last ever, of course, with him uh, looking frail and uh, lying there in bed with a bandage around his eyes, with his little button eyes. And I spoke to Johan about that video and, um, and about working with Bowie in those last months. And uh, here are some sections of what he said. In the fear of all men, in the fear of all men, stands a solitary candle. me and said look I need to Skype with you this is July of last summer and I say of course and we we're, we're, I'm in Sweden at this time in my summer house in Sweden and he calls me up on Skype and he says look I have something I want to tell you that or that I have to tell you because I think it's it's enormously important for our ongoing work here and I so yeah sure well, what's up and he says uh, you know he basically looks me in the eye on Skype and says uh, well I have to tell you that I'm very ill and that I'm probably going to die he said I need to tell you this because I want to be in the video for Black Star but I'm not sure I'll be around so we have to talk about a replacement you know that's what he said to me on Skype but I think he I don't think that was his agenda really what I thought his agenda was that he was aware of the fact that he was ill and that he was probably going to pass away. And he wanted me to be aware of this because he wanted that to be a part of the, uh, of the fabric of what would make this video, you know, that, that I, as the director of the video, would know that he was ill and was going to pass away, you know. Me, personally, I found it very hard to take all this in, obviously. Uh, we were at the same time spitballing ideas and talking about this video, you know, and sending things back and forth to each other. So in my mind, I think I, I went through it as if he's ill, he will be going through therapy or, and all of these chemotherapy and, and radiation, whatever it is. He will battle cancer for a number of years and he will be very ill, but then he will probably make it. <laughs> that was my thoughts on it. But all along, he obviously knew more than that, you know. So we spent that summer collaborating around the Black Star video, which is a very ambitious video. You know, it's a 10-minute long song. In my mind, it deals with reflections on mortality and on aftermaths, on legacies and trajectories. You know, because in my mind also what happens if when you're a young songwriter, I'm sure everything you write has a, a forward trajectory. But at some time in life, if you're a creative, if you write songs, paint pictures, take photos, make films, whatever... 
I have a feeling that you start, you know, reversing that process and become more contemplative and, and, and reminiscent and your, your work sort of becomes rather backwards directed. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but what I mean, it becomes reflective. You come to a point in life when you have to reflect. And, and I think also in being that type of artist, you also come to a point when you have to when you will, no matter who you are, you will think of your legacy. So, you know, in me listening to Black Star, the lyrics of the song, he speaks about the day of execution, and there is an element of, of death definitely in the song. To me, it was more about facing your deathbed and what that entails in terms of your, your, the aftermath and the heritage you leave behind, you know. When we had shot Black Star and was editing it, or even before that, actually, he sent me and said, hey, I have another song I want to do a video to. Actually, he sent me that quite early, the same summer, I think. But it kind of fell off the map a bit because I was so busy in Black Star, so I couldn't really deal with another video in the middle of that. But then that resurfaced sometime in, in October or November. He said to me, I want to make a very simple video of this. I want this to be just a performance video. As I listened to the song, and actually just the title of the song, I, I hit him back and I said, look, you might consider me banal, but I really feel with this title of the song, I want you to be in a bed. And I felt a little uneasy about suggesting this because, again, I knew he was ill and I, I didn't want him to think that I was sort of pu putting him in a deathbed. But to me, it was much more about the biblical aspect of Lazarus, you know. But he immediately responded. I sent him a drawing of what I wanted the set to be and how I looked at and a few reference pictures. And he just said, yeah, man, I love it. Let's do it. Um, in my mind, I was making a video with, you know, a nod at the biblical aspect of Lazarus. And, and, and to me, it wasn't necessarily a hospital bed, but maybe more an asylum bed or some, some, a bed for somebody who, who needs uh, other type of care. But I think in his mind, he... I mean, I, I would never second guess him, but I think he saw something else in it. I think he saw a deathbed in it. So we were, we were working on the same ideas at all times, but with two slightly different paths. Look up here, I'm in heaven. I've got scars that can't be seen. Like most of the songs on the Black Star album, Johan's video for Lazarus took on a very different tone after Bowie's death and seemed laden with clues and references, not only to his condition at the time, but to his career as a whole. I asked Johan specifically about the choice of the black outfit with white painted stripes that Bowie wears while grooving around in the second half of the video. It's the same kind of outfit he wore on the back cover of Station to Station in 1975. In that picture, he's lying on his side, sketching the symbol for the Kabbalah Tree of Life. I also asked Johan about the image of the woman clawing at Bowie from beneath his bed in the Lazarus video. The woman under the bed in the, in the Lazarus video came from me. I wanted to have some kind of, you know, the, the representation of childhood fears, you know, somebody in the closet and somebody under the bed and those kind of things. So it's pretty, you know, in some way, a pretty sim simple idea for me just to have the presence of something, um, something to fear. And obviously, in my mind also, it's, you know, which was not openly shared between us, but we both knew that it to some extent also represented the disease, I guess, you know, or the idea of a disease or something like that, you know. So, so it's nothing more 
complex than that. It was a pretty sort of childish idea of of your fears coming at you, you know. Um, the outfit uh, from station to station. David, I was in his office and he said, you know, we were talking about various outfits for the second character in the last series video. And he said, what about this thing? And I said, yeah, but you've been there before, you know, and said, yeah, that's why I want to do it again. I want, I want, I want it to be an echo, you know? Um, and I, I liked it a lot, you know, and, and I didn't ask again more about it because he, he would have his reasons for this. He has, you know, the, the depth of references in his career and the, the connotations of that will mean so much to him. And, and it's no, I have no business even asking why, you know, uh, unless I, I couldn't understand it or agree with it, you know, but it was an outfit that made complete sense for me for that character anyways. The video for Lazarus was shot just weeks before Bowie died. Johan didn't realize how little time David had left while they were working until he spoke to Bowie's producer, Tony Visconti, following Bowie's death. Just before we shot the Lazarus video, um, David had gotten word from his doctors that we're terminating treatments, there's nothing we can do, this is the end. So he knew that when we were shooting that video. I obviously didn't know it. And, even shooting that video, which was a little bit messy because that video, the bed was built up high on a wall. You know, it's mounted on a wall to be able to do the shots I wanted to do. And David would climb up on ladders and strap himself in a bed. And, you know, there was nothing in his behavior suggesting that he was more ill than before or that he had reached the final stage. He was as funny as ever. I mean, for instance, you know, the, in the end of the video in which when David sort of goes into this closet and closes the door, that came up, I said, uh, improvised idea on this on the day of the shoot you know saying like hey wouldn't it be funny if you went back into you went into the closet all your fans would sort of be wondering what does this mean david bowie has gone back into the closet you know and a nod on 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 ambiguous sexuality and those kind of things. And he would laugh and say, yeah, we're definitely going to do that. But in his mind, it, it, it's more like, I don't know, but I mean, he it's clearly him walking into a coffin and closing his door, you know, if you think about it. I don't know how I would have dealt with all of this if I knew the outcome, you know, that, that he was actually going to pass away pretty much on the, the same time as the Lazarus video would come out, you know. And, and I remember, you know, I, uh, I, that the same week that, he, that it was his birthday, which is the 8th of January, you know, when the Lazarus video was going to come out, that Monday, I think, as I was sitting and watching the video, was something that didn't work for me. Something was wrong. It felt a little too precious or something like me. So I just called my post guys and said, hey, make it sort of one by one aspect ratio. Make it completely square. I want it to feel more homemade. It feels too, you know, it, it's feeling too precious. So they sent me a test run of that, which I passed, said to him, look, look, I really want to make this video square. It feels sort of more makeshift and less try too hard, you know, and I really like what it does. It becomes a little more claustrophobic, blah, 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 blah. So I sent it to him and he said, yeah, man, let's do it. You know, he answered, I love that, you know. Um, And that was sort of that week. And on the Friday of that week, I sent him an email to say happy birthday and happy day of birth for your new album. And he never replied. And then on the Saturday, I mailed him something else. I don't really remember what it was. So I had another little note there. And I remember on the Sunday being a little grumpy that he hadn't answered my emails, which was a very strange thing, because then on the Monday early morning, when I got woken with the news, the first thing I felt was like, 
what a fucking cunt I am who fe- who's feeling butthurt because he's not answering my fucking stupid emails when the man is actually lying in bed surrounded by his family dying you know so 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 it was a lot it was a very 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 strange day that monday that was devastating obviously you know even more devastating than i could ever imagine i was actually absolutely crushed Director Johan Renk was talking to me there. Thanks very much, Johan. Death, eh? I think it's overrated. I'm sure Bowie's liver cancer was a long way from being a picnic, even a really, really bad picnic with ants and wind that keeps blowing everything over and you've forgotten the corkscrew. But I was impressed and heartened that he continued to work right into those last weeks. I hope I can still do something I love in my last days. And yes, of course, I'm talking about paintballing. This is a Squarespace advert. Do you want to build a website? Yes. I will tell you how. Visit squarespace.com slash Buxton now. Start a free trial today and in minutes you will say My website dreams are finally coming true. Just tell Squarespace what you want to do. They'll suggest some templates that might be right for you. Drag in pictures and text, add some videos. The next thing you know, your website will be done. Because you'll save 10% if it's your first purchase of a website or domain. Oh, 10%! That's my favourite percent! Thank you, Squarespace! The week after Bowie died, I spent half an hour or so talking with Jonathan Ross, another Bowie nut who, unlike me, actually met his hero on several occasions and even became quite pally with him. After an awkward ten minutes or so when I could barely hear what Jonathan was saying because of the wheezing and snorting from his adorable gang of pug dogs, we moved into another room and talked Bowie good times and some bad times too. Oh, and a note. When, towards the end of our chat, Jonathan mentions a phone conversation that Ricky had with Bowie, he's talking about comedian Ricky Gervais, in case you were wondering why Bowie would call Ricky Martin to suggest clowning around on a chat show. Hope that makes everything clear. The baby spiders would get scared and search frantically for their mother, but the glass spider would have long gone, having known that the babies would survive somehow on their own. Oh, the glass spider had blue eyes almost like a human's. They shed tears at the winter turn of the centuries. I want to see the Glass Spider tour. I want to see Let's Dance, the first time I saw him live, and Glass Spider. Glass Spider was pretty terrible, I thought. Um, but he was trying to do something. He was trying to put on a show. In what was he trying to do there? Because in, you've seen um, Todd Haynes' film, Velvet Goldmine, yeah. presumably. Yeah? yeah. And that's an odd artefact in its own right. I that, quite like that, it. That, there's a lot to like it. I there. like the fact it exists. Certainly. Well, exactly, exactly. There's a lot of strange stuff. And certainly if you're a Bowie fan or a fan of Iggy Pop or any of those um, people, it's it's well worth a look. But there's a version of a Bowie-like figure yeah. in that film towards the end that 
Haynes seems to be saying is is this corrupted, commercialised version of Bowie that looks like the glass spider Bowie with that uh, blonde bouffant. See, I imagine Bowie was probably mystified if he if he was aware of that kind of perception of what he was doing then because. I like you, I'm sure, since she died. I found myself looking at more old clips and I discovered more stuff on YouTube than I had previously even been aware of. And I was watching the 1980s show, you know, that great American TV thing he did, which was, it's got a bunch of tracks from pinups on it and he yes. did a couple of things, I think, from Aladdin Saint. Yes, with the astronauts, I think. Yeah, and it's you know, on, a, on a far too small a stage, yes. far too cheap and shitty a set. And, and there's very much, you can really see the influence of the early Lindsay Kemp-style Bowie there, or the kind of movement, dancing, the staging. Two of the incredible costume changes. It's not that different. Mm. It's just slightly, maybe slightly different in tone, and maybe it's the perception that we had. Maybe we came to Glass Spider thinking, well, this is him trying to replicate the success that he had with Let's Dance. Yeah, you know? and perhaps it just wasn't... It was bad timing at that point. Well, as I understand it, he was a bit unhappy and off the rails again then, as I understand it. You know, Let's Dance was him coming back incredibly healthy. Yeah. He'd really cleaned himself up. He'd gone out and he had wanted to have hits, but wanted to have hits where he obviously had something to say still within them. He looks, I think, I feel that he is at his most beautiful at his, in his Let's Dance phase. Don't you think, like, in I would, China Girl? I would say no. I would say still for me... It's low. Yeah, that cover of low. Yeah, yeah. That Manifold one shot on the cover of low for Manifold Tour. No one wore a wide brim fedora. Like, Bowen, we've both tried. I know yeah. you've tried. <laughs> I know you've tried. And you look like you look like a sort of, like, 1920s Weimar Republic cartoon of a yes. businessman. I look, I look like one of the Ant Hill mob. I look like a sleazy Euro MP. I look like George Galloway on a bad day. So it's like, yeah. we can't pull that off. We've made peace with that. Yeah. But he, you know, and, and like so many, I mean, how many Bowie looks did you try? Because for the next, the only time in my life I've ever dyed my hair, and I was very much influenced by, very excited by punk, and very threw myself into punk as much as I felt I could, to the extent where I had to retake my exams one year because I'd missed so much school. It was the perfect age. I was 16, 17 when that all happened. But I tried dyeing my hair blonde for Let's Dance. I did it at home, and it actually came out ginger, and I just looked like Tintin. Uh-huh. And it was kind of humiliating to go to that gig, wanting to be Bowie, and then seeing a sea of other young men pouring out of Milton Keynes Station, which is where he gigged. It was the closest done, all with better dyed blonde hair than me. You know? but, but seeing that impact, seeing literally, I mean, it was like being at a rally, seeing tens of thousands of people yeah. all gathered, all not just to enjoy the music, but trying to look like him and be him, look, yeah. which you don't get other gigs. You know, you don't get that. You don't, I mean, maybe, I tell you who maybe had that influence early in Roxy Music. Right. That, where people, that was, you bought into the the style package. And these were the first people to present themselves. I mean, it was interesting. Uh, I've been exchanging a few emails with uh, uh, Danny Baker since Bowie's death, and he said one thing which really struck me as being true. He said, look, it's very difficult for the last couple of generations who came after us to understand there was a time when pop culture was not the dominant culture by any stretch, where people like Bowie were not... You couldn't... No-one was being packaged and, and sold to us, and someone had to do that for themselves and say, I want to present this experience, despite a kind of almost complete antipathy that was in media back then. There was, you know, you had to search, search, search for 
images. You, they weren't printed in the paper every day. You never saw pictures of pop stars in the paper or, or people who were recording artists, you know, unless they were arriving somewhere with someone else or leaving somewhere. Yeah. You know, you never saw on television shows about people like that. They were few and far between. You know, they were very, very rare. And he kind of led the way with that kind of thing. And that's one of the reasons, I think, why, one of the many reasons why we're all feeling this loss so keenly, because he created that the modern world. He created the culture of today to an extent. He's not responsible for the, the worst aspects of it, but I think certainly he created this world where popular culture and avant-garde ideas blended into entertainment were considered worthy of serious attention. There's a lot of people talking about how he gave them the courage to express themselves in unconventional ways, whether it was, uh, you know, if they felt like misfits or they had sexuality that they were afraid to express, then Bowie gave them the uh, courage to express that. I was never one of those people. You know, I was just a kind of fairly ordinary um, middle-class boy, heterosexual, didn't have too many worries and hang-ups that I needed help with in that way. And, in fact, I was a little scandalised early on by some of the things I read about Bowie. And and now there are some kind of negative bits and pieces dribbling out about some of his more unpleasant excesses in the early 70s, you know, when there were underage groupies around and when everyone was at that kind of thing. You know, for for me, he was kind of a creepy figure in some ways, and he certainly was for my dad. Yeah, well, your dad, I think, (laughs) your your dad would have been scared of, like, you know, I imagine Kenny Everett terrified your father as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. No, he was. was, Your dad was a very... We're we're going, as a litmus test, your father is kind of pretty much as far into the alkaline as possible. Exactly, exactly. I remember seeing him on top of the pops doing Gene Genie, I think. It was either Gene Genie or Rebel Rebel. It was one of those two. I was fucking terrified. He was terrible because he did look like an alien. Yeah. I didn't understand what was going on. What I knew was it was incredibly exciting. And I thought about it for a long while afterwards, but I was scared of him. Yeah. And then it was the music that I listened to that made me fall in love with him. Exactly. There's no doubt that he gave a voice to people who might have felt there were things that you couldn't and shouldn't say. Yeah. And that you couldn't and perhaps weren't able to recognise in yourself comfortably because there were no figures out there who were prepared. I mean, one of the things about him that's so interesting, I think, is the fact that he, you know, he has always had something to say. You might not have always agreed with it, but he's always had, and his work wasn't empty posturing. I mean, you look at the number of people who've tried to be Bowie. There were people out there who thought, okay, makeup, extravagant clothes, you know, a weird set, that would be enough. That isn't enough. That wasn't enough. What he had to back it up was this incredible kind of craft wizardry when it came to constructing songs. And a kind of ravenous curiosity as well. Yeah, I mean, the fact that he turned so many people on to new ideas, the fact that you knew, even if we all here only pretended to read the books he'd read, we were still talking about I wonder, about, I was thinking about that, because he used to tour with, like, a big mobile library. Well, famously, he? for many years, he was reluctant to fly. He uh-huh. didn't fly, so he would take one of those big kind of, like... Um, Steamer steamer trunk. He'd take that on when he went to... I remember seeing a photograph of him leaving to go and film Man Who Fell to Earth. I think I saw it many years after they done that. And that was an open up and it had Nietzsche in there. There was Marks in there. And, of course, he was in Colin Wilson. And all these names that we may well not have heard of. Boas. I think the first time I heard about William Boas was because of him, you know. And some of which I would go on to read and some of which I would pretend to read. But... Certainly, I think he opened the eyes to that. The fact that he went out and had that love affair with Japan, I think that helped colour my 
desire to know a bit about Japanese culture, which right. was then, which has become a lifelong passion of mine. But the fact that he came back with Japanese-inspired theatricality and clothing from some of the more avant-garde designers there, uh, 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 and and we saw at the time it just being this kind of like high weirdness, and now we look back and see it as this kind of progressive genius, and that's what he was, I suppose. There's a lot of talk about transgressive and progressive behaviour these days, and he was progressive in the best sense, wasn't he? And mm. he? He kind of walked the walk. He wasn't, you know, another phrase right now, he wasn't a slacktivist in any sense. He wasn't someone who'd wear a T-shirt saying, this is what a feminist looks like and do nothing <laughs> about it. Yeah. He was someone who went out there, and presumably, I mean, because I didn't know him terribly too well, I knew him very, very slightly, but... um you know that he his life was infused and informed by those ideas thoroughly. It wasn't a superficial thing, you know. And he was a seemed to be certainly someone who was um, greedily keen to explore the world, to explore what it had to offer, to explore other people's ideas. And he obviously read all the time. Art was very important to him. Mm. I mean, art was something he needed, he fed off of, yeah. he lived for to an extent. You know, he wrote for that Modern Painters Review for a little oh, while. That's right. Yeah. Uh, you know, so obviously and that was a side of his life which was certainly not done for any other reason. Then he wanted to do it because what gain is there writing for a non-profit little modern art review with a, but with a kind of like tiny iconoclastic group of people who weren't really welcoming to others anyway. But that was something which he cared about. Well, I suppose... I suppose the gain would be to be thought of in the way that he wanted to be thought of. But he didn't publicise that. I mean, I was always slightly wary, and this is unfair, I was very slightly wary of um, Pete Townsend's intellectualising when he became an editor for Faber. Uh-huh. And I thought, yeah, you know, really, they really want you to be an editor. You know, they're using your celebrity and you're falling for it and you're using the prestige that seems to give you. Well, I didn't know Bowie was doing those things. Yeah. I wasn't aware... Bowie didn't inflict a lot of his artwork on us. There were pieces that we saw and we knew existed. That's true. But he wasn't someone who put his own paintings on the cover of every album, which he could have quite easily done, and we'd have lapped it up. But yeah. he had, he had what he would do is he would seek to work with artists who inspired him, and he would put their work on the cover. I mean, I can't remember the name of the guy, but that photographer who did the cover of Lodger. And Lodger, oh, that's yeah. a spectacular that's great, concept, photograph, completely out there. And you know that came from Bowie. You know Bowie knew his work and went, I want to work with you. And he didn't, there wasn't a big deal about that. That wasn't like, oh, I found this artist. It was like, that was put out for mass consumption by us in the most kind of like, you know, the most, there was a real finesse there. It's like, I'm going to introduce you to something without you knowing I'm introducing you to something. Yeah, and yeah. I'm, not, I'm not gaining cachet from this. I am sharing something with you that has meant something to me. And this is the thing I find fascinating, you know. I mean, I think what we're mourning really is the loss of a great, great artist who used all the things that he had access to in creating his statements. And one of the things he used best of all was his body. Was his, And you think he was given this incredible canvas to work with, the most beautiful face, the most incredible physique. There's a quote I'm reading from Elton John, which is not particularly relevant, but I'm throwing it in there anyway, where someone asked him why he used to dress as Donald Duck on stage and sometimes wear those stupid glasses. And yeah. he said, well, I can't dance like Jagger and I don't look like Bowie, so I've got to do something. Right. And you think, well, Bowie did have this incredible gift, which yeah. was this, the genetics involved there. And when you add that to one, and, but he didn't just walk out there. He wasn't Mick Jagger, who, of course, is, you know, he's fine, if you like, that kind of thing. I've never, ever been excited about the Rolling Stones in my entire life. <laughs> not once. I mean, seriously, not once. Exile on Main Street? No, who cares? Come Give on, me man. any New York Dolls album. I know what you mean. Any Rolling Stones album. Because the ideas weren't there for me. It, never, it felt to me too prosaic. Well, exactly. Like, I love this girl, she doesn't love me back. Or I'm screwing a lot of people, aren't I lucky? Or because they were trying to be authentic. They were keeping it authentic for the blues. And yeah, but I didn't feel sort of it thing. was 
resources. I, well, I agree with you, though. Um, it is. It's inauthentic. It's just these um, guys doing their version of the blues. And there was something, you know, Bowie's detractors would always say, oh, he's just a magpie and he's just uh, nicking this and he's nicking that. And, I don't um, think he, he stole ideas. I think he was influenced by ideas as any artist is. Yeah. And then they were filtered through his unique perspective and normally came out different, stronger, either more appealing or less appealing, but they, they informed his work, but they did not in any way dominate or colour it to the extent where he didn't have ideas to add to it. Right. I mean, you know, you think about, you, you know, you look up music for airport, where it's called the Eno album, that mm. kind of we see as the birth of ambient music and the whole chill out thing. You think, okay, discreet music. Is it discreet? Clearly that fed into Low and that German period a little bit there, but mm. it's, it's no actually, the B-side of Low doesn't sound like an Eno album. Mm. The B-side of Low, I'm saying B-side, of course, side two, I guess it would be more, but uh, people who've only experienced music by CDs don't know what I'm talking about here. Yeah. But, the interesting thing about music being served up in those days was that, you know, you flipped it over. And when you flipped that over, you entered a different world. Yeah. And he knew that. Uh, and they designed it that way. Uh, and it was a radical and revolutionary piece of music, which was somewhat influenced by his experience with Eno and what Eno had done before. But it was also experienced by Can, perhaps, and uh, Tangerine Dream. Oh, yeah. That kind of weird, those layers and that kind of thing. And also there was a whole new sound in there. Um, but that was still essentially Bowie. Mm. No one else. And that's what I think is fantastic, was where you can listen to. And even when he went into stuff which was a bit more conventional, I mean, there's a, there's been a quote this week from um, uh, Niles Rogers talking about working with him on Let's Dance. And he mm. said the interesting thing was when that came out, he'd heard, he, apparently Bowie said to someone, I've got this here, I'm Phil Collins. <laughs> in a good way. He said that in a good way. What he meant was, I'm, because Phil Collins dominated popular music. Sure, three, yeah, he was massive. I'm on the radio, I'm selling records. And of course he wanted to sell records, not know, just because he funny? wanted to earn a living, yeah. but because he wanted people to hear his music. And he wanted to feel uh, part of it. He wanted to feel um, um, valid. Yeah. And, and you know, um, current and in the moment. Yes, because, because that kind of acceptance was like the... Last piece in the puzzle, in a way, for, for some of his stuff, wasn't but, it? But, you know, but when you think back about an album like um, Station to Station, which has, you know, two or three incredibly accessible... Yeah, Golden Years. Classic songs. Right. Uh, but then has that long, beautifully delivered version of Wild is the Wind. Oh, mate, yeah. Yeah, which is almost as good as Nina Simone's version. Well, it's... Yeah, it is. I mean, it is. It's amazing. It's different, but it's incredible that he would lay that out there. And I remember as a kid when I bought the album, I was like, I don't know, when was that, 76, 76? Yes, uh, 75 it was recorded, 76 it came out, yeah. So I was like 15 when that came out. I remember again, I was like, what the fuck is, what that, what's this song? And then just wanting to hear it again and again and again. I suspect, and I think I've heard unseen quotes where he always felt somewhat limited by being a singer. Mm-hmm. And he would not have wanted to be a singer. You know, and it's no no coincidence. I think that the last few albums, the last two albums in particular, have had that kind of have not been as accessible, have not had songs with the shape and the feel of popular music in the way that we he was writing, even up to reality. Yeah, you know, they're not that way, and they've gone more in the direction. If we do have to draw another name, in Scott Walker, right? And I know that he admired and liked Scott Walker's early work, and obviously found his later work. Uh, perplexing and attractive in the way that I think we all did. I mean, did you see that big Scott Walker documentary recently which Bowie's talking about Scott Walker? 30th century man. Yeah, and he's laughing about some of the latest, the sounds and, the, and, the, and just the... That's the, right, the meat punching. Yeah, and you think, well, 
that he, he, you know, that's the other thing about Bowie. He had a real sense of humour, but he also had a, a lack of uh, pretentiousness about what he did. And he also, I think, didn't really understand what he meant to us. He did at times, and other times he didn't. He was doing my show one time, and Ricky phoned me and said, Bowie's going to be on your show again. I said, yeah, of course. And he said, he phoned me and said, would I like to come on with him? He had an idea that while he's performing, you and me come out behind him like we're decorating the set and start knocking stuff over, like an old Morecambe and Wise routine. And I right. thought, well, that's the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. Can you imagine Bowie fans sitting at home and then these two fucking idiots come out <laughs> behind him and ruin, because as fans, we both, you know, you just wanted to see him. Right. I wanted to see him doing anything, and I was always disappointed when it was over. I mean, I remember waiting... And knowing that he was going to be on that Mark Boland show when Heroes came out, uh-huh. desperately waiting to see it, and then it coming on. First of all, being a bit surprised and disappointed by the haircut, which I think was Bowie's worst ever haircut. But I remember just and Heroes, of course, was this magnificent hand grenade that went off in all our lives. But I'm thinking, really, do you not realise what your appearance means to me mm-hmm. as a fan? Never mind the fans watching. Just me in the room. I don't want to be the jerk coming out behind you and ruining this for some kind of cheap laugh. Yeah. And But then I think he was probably, for him, hearing David Bowie sing was no treat. Yes. <laughs> you know, for him, that's what he could get in the shower if he wanted. For us, it was a little oasis whenever it happened. It was something we know it would nourish us. Yeah. Um, but I love the fact that he not only saw it as something that we could subvert and play around with, but also that it was such a shit idea we had to make it funny. <laughs> the fact that me and Ricky falling over and knocking over some planks, it was like something you see at Sunday Night at the London Palladium in 1963, yeah. with, you know, it would have been uh, Norman Wisdom and Tommy Cooper, you know, far better comedians than, than me and Ricky, not that I'm a comedian anyway. But you know what I mean? I love the fact that he saw it in that light, and I thought, well, that's... It sort of humanised him in my eyes yeah. quite a lot. When Did you I... do it? No, of course not. Right. I found a way of politely defusing it and saying, you know, I think it, I think I even said to him, it's a special thing for us to see you perform uh-huh. and I cannot, in good conscience, be involved in diminishing that yes. moment for people. Well, you very kindly took me and Joe along to uh, Made of Ale to see... When he played that little Radio 2 gig, which was incredible. Yeah, and that was the first time he'd played Beaulieu Brothers well, in Well, that's years. really thanks to Joe indirectly, because I remember Bowie spoke to me beforehand. He'd asked me if I'd introduce him. And, of course, whenever I got that kind of offer from him, it was like I just couldn't believe my luck. And I said, yeah, of course, I'd, you know, I'd be incredibly upset if someone else was doing it. Yeah. And it was a gig, and I went down and saw a little bit of the rehearsal as well, and that was a real... Those sort of uh, memories are obviously cherished. But... Um, he spoke to me like a week or two before and he said, I'm doing this gig and I'm going to do this stuff and this stuff. So he said, and he actually said to me, is there anything you'd like to hear me play? And I thought, okay. So I, I remember thinking, okay, I'm not going to throw away this chance here. I mean, my intonation, well, you know, I can't choose a favourite life on Mars. He's obviously out there for all of us, but, you know, yeah. I'd heard him do that. So I spoke to Joe. I bumped. I saw Joe before you. And I said to Joe, oh, Bowie's doing this thing and I want you to come back. Uh, he said, is anyone going to play it? And Joe said, you know, he's never done Beaulieu Brothers Live that I'm aware of. And I went, oh, you're right, you know, I've never heard that. Hang on, this doesn't sound like Joe. Joe said that to me. What? Yeah, Joe knew that, man. Joe Cornish. Joe was in this room, and we started trying to sing Beaulieu Brothers at the piano, and he mocked my lack of vocal range. That was Joe Cornish. There's a side of Joe you haven't seen, obviously. And Clearly. I, this is terrible that this is, the, this is where this has come out. So I then said to Bowie... 
I don't think you've ever done Beauty Brothers live. I was talking to a couple of fans, and they and he went, oh, okay, I'll I'll do it then. Yeah, I'm thinking, holy fuck, he's gonna do it. And he even says on the thing when he did it, he didn't say how it came about. He said, oh, I haven't done this one. I don't think I've done this live. Yeah, for a long, long time. I did it once before, and I have to get the words out. There's a lot of words in it. And he That's got a right. sheaf of paper and read it. Did this incredible version of it. And I remember, I certainly felt, and I think others did, that that was a very special moment. Yeah, you know, he, he nailed it, it was great. Because it's an incredible song, and the band nailed it as well, they were an incredible band he was talking with. Mm. I've got another story from that period that you might enjoy, I think it's quite a funny story, I hope so anyway, which is that the night I was DJing for him... Right, so this is when he was, he was curating, curating the Meltdown. And yeah. he managed to get New York Dolls back on. No, no, he didn't do New York Dolls, sorry, that was Marcy. He got television back together. Uh, yeah. And I was out that night, I, couldn't, I was working, so I couldn't go and see television, which I'd love to have seen. So he said to me, will you DJ? Of course I said yes. And I'd never actually DJed before for anyone. And I've only DJed for two people in my life now. It's a pretty good track record so far. David Bowie and Yoko Ono. Nice. Yeah. So um, David asked me, and I thought, well, so I remember asking you, because you always did those. You have, I think, very wide and excellent musical taste. Thank you very much. You've, you got me excited about the Pixies when I hadn't really bothered listening to them before. Oh, yeah, Bowie always loved them. Yeah, so... I said, okay, I'm, I'm glad you do it. And I mean, also, you gave me a selection of tracks, and some of which were good, all of which were good, and yeah. I showed it to Bowie. So when I actually turned up there, I was doing two sets that night. The first set was going to be, I believe, yeah, yeah, no, I think it was a warm-up gig before he started, uh-huh. and then I was doing one afterwards, okay? So it was before and after this two-part show. And the first part of his show was going to be new material from, I guess, I think, reality, yeah. and he then, and whatever the other one was. Outside. From that, outside. Uh, and then there was going to be a break, and he said he was going to do all of the B-side of Low, which he did, live. And, of course, that's not necessarily a crowd-pleaser, but I was no. delighted. The opening band from that were the Dandy Warhols, who did an incredible thing. They just did a really long kind of sonic jam that was awesome. Yeah. It was great. They didn't do a hit. They just did this thing, which is how I imagine, because I remember reading the Iggy and the Stooges, before they rehearsed, they would just jam and get in sync with each other. And I imagine it's a bit like that. And I remember sitting there thinking, this is awesome already. So And it was great that Bowie saw in them something which perhaps we didn't all see, you know, because yeah. they were seen as a bit disposable time. So the first set I did, I tried to play some of the music you'd suggested and a few for myself. So I put some of the tracks I put in that you had to put a bit of Cornelius. Oh, yeah, great. A bit of Yoko. Right. right? Went down terribly. Oh. Went down terribly. The audience, no, no one there was, no one cared. Put on War, Low Rider, your suggestion, no one cared. Come on. Put on one Bowie track, place went fucking nuts. And I went, ah, <laughs> I see, oh, now I they see what they want. Bowie, right. They want Bowie. Put on the Lou Reed track, place goes nuts. Oh, I see. So basically all I really need here is Transformer yeah. and Bowie albums, which, of course, I hadn't brought many of them with me. So I phoned home and I went, guys, I'm, I, can someone go to my office? There's a look in the D section or the B section, the yeah. Bowie. Just put every Bowie CD in there for me. Any Lou Reed, bit of Iggy. Uh, maybe not the hoople, let's go crazy, T-Rex, go on. So during the first part of Informal Life, someone came and found me in the audience and gave me a Tesco carrier bag with loads of CD. <laughs> thank you very much. Someone from, I'm so, I'm so, thank you, thank you. While everyone's trying to watch both. And I'm clutching this bag, and Bowie had said, if you'd like to come and see me, in between, come and see me. Yeah. So of course I went backstage to see him. I go backstage to see him, clutching his carrier bag. He comes out of his dressing room barefoot. The God is there barefoot. He's just performed incredibly. He's done hits, 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 hits. And anyway, Jonathan, I'm thinking of doing, uh, I'm thinking of doing, you know, low. I'm doing, uh, what's that song? You know, the one that Tracy album, and, and that track where he goes, ooh, hey, oh, hey, oh, hey, oh, hey, oh. Wasawa. Yeah. Wasawa. 
Right, so he said, he said, you like louder, it's your favourite album. Huh? I said, it is my favourite of your albums. I think, yeah. yeah, he said, what do I sing? And of course, I've got a kind of lyric blindness anyway. But certainly that track, I always assumed he was just making noises. So I went... It's a made-up language. I said, I, 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 uh, but I didn't want to mix him, I didn't know. I went, I think, is it... Um, I, uh, uh, I said, oh, hang on, I've, I've got it here. We could listen to it. Now, I get, I get out. So I went to get out the bag. I'm standing in the hallway still. He hasn't invited me into his dressing room. So he's standing yeah. there barefoot. Looks magnificent. As I reach in the bag, too excited, I pushed them all through the bottom. Of <laughs> so all of his CDs <laughs> fell out around his bare feet. Yeah. So I immediately get down on my knees. So I'm on my knees in front of Bowie and bare feet. As his band walk out to go and say to Mike Garson, the genius keyboard player, yeah. who did that incredible riff on the land, he walks past and they stop. And they start laughing at me as I'm scrabbling around at Bowie's feet with all his records spread out. Like I'm, and Mike Gosling just went, I think that's the saddest thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Jonathan Ross for talking to me before that mixed-up blast of space oddity there. My pre-ordered copy of Bowie's last album, Black Star, arrived hours after I'd read about his death. I'd heard the singles and a couple of older tracks already, and I liked them well enough. But of course, once he was gone and the truth about his last months emerged, everything on the album sounded completely different. Simultaneously sad, mysterious, and in the case of the last track, uplifting. That track, I Can't Give Everything Away, immediately quotes the harmonica riff from the similarly propulsive and poignant A New Career in a New Town from the album Low. Here's I Can't Give Everything Away. And here's A New Career in a New Town. I Can't Give Everything Away also features a couple of euphoric solos. The first is from Donny McCaslin, who goes on a saxophone adventure that is as thrilling as it is heartbreaking. That's a sentence I never expected or wanted to say in my life, having grown up in the 80s. But that's what death and middle age do to a person. The second, solo that is, is a lovely swooping guitar thing from Ben Monder that recalls Robert Fripp's guitar work on the track St. Elmo's Fire from Brian Eno's album Another Green World. That's a record that Bowie certainly loved. Lyrically, Bowie keeps it gnomic, though not laughing gnomic. I know something's very wrong. The pulse returns, the prodigal sons, the blackout hearts with flowered news, the skull designs upon my shoes. I can't give everything away. For about two weeks after Bowie died, I listened to Black Star exclusively, like a kind of a mad guy. It gave shape to a confusion of intense feelings about my dad, 
about Bowie, about getting older, about everything. But I Can't Give Everything Away was the one I kept coming back to. The day I first listened to it, and it immediately got its hooks in me, I made a voice note about it, getting emotional and acting as if it contained the meaning of life in a way that can happen when music's involved. Well, it seems fairly obviously um, a rumination on uh, facing mortality and, and also an answer to all the people who were frustrated by his obliqueness and the artifice and the manipulation. And he's saying, come on, that's the game. That's what makes it fun. If I told you everything, if I explained everything, it wouldn't be fun anymore. It would just be like, oh, really? Oh, I could have worked that out for myself. The, f the fun thing and the bit that makes your heart sore is not knowing everything completely and, and the mystery. And in the space created by that mystery, you can cultivate hope. Hope that there are secrets you don't know or fully understand and the hope that there's something more to life than you suspect there is and the hope that things might get better and all kinds of hopes and he was saying I think I can't I can't explain everything and you wouldn't want me to and also, I've trained myself not to. And that's why you like me. And he was right. But it really hurt to listen to it. It was like... It was like being punched... in the face... by David Bowie. Which probably wouldn't be that terrible a punch, would it, really? Well, I think that's probably enough Bowie wallowing for one week. Thanks very much indeed for listening. I thought it would be good to end with some music, though, so I asked Gaz Coombs if he would be up for doing a Bowie cover for this podcast, and I was delighted when he said that he would, and even more delighted when I heard the finished result. Um, and he said this about it in his email. Five years was the first Bowie song I remember properly getting into. We were so obsessed as kids, we tried to rip off and sample the snare sound on our first Jennifer's EP, haha. I also wanted to cover this one basically so I could sing the lines, It was cold and it rained, so I felt like an actor, and I thought of Ma, and I wanted to get back there. 
possibly my fave lyrics of all time. Anyway, I hope I didn't destroy it and this version is appropriate and useful to you for the podcast. Big love, man, Gaz. Thanks, Gaz. It is both appropriate and useful for the podcast and I hope you don't mind if I dedicate it to my two dads and all the work of Paul Reiser and Greg Evigan. Take care. I love you. Bye. Pushing through the market square So many mothers say News had just come over We have five years left to cry It was cold.